So the trade that we made is for control. It's not just because it was the only way to go in this market, which made that trade obvious as opposed to more less of a choice, more of a it was a compelling thing situation. But we feel that there's nobody that's going to call a special meeting and tell us that we have to start selling widgets and not cannabis. That's not coming our way. And that's a very big advantage to not having the one big funder, which is fraught with risk, in my view. From the PodConnect studios, high in the Rockies at the beautiful Beaver Creek Resort, it's the Raising Cannabis Capital Show. Today on the MJ Bulls Raising Cannabis Capital, we are continuing our conversation with Paul Weiss, the CEO of Paper Planes. Paul, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I appreciate you doing this. We had a lot of positive feedback last week when you were on the show, and we talked mostly about your company, but during that conversation, we learned that you actually have experience as an investor and as an entrepreneur, as a business owner in the cannabis space. And we thought, what a perfect opportunity for us to pick your brain about what it's like to raise capital in the cannabis industry today, what right now, what in maybe some strategies that we can, people can use to better increase their odds of actually landing some, some capital. So I thought that'd be a great place to start today's conversation. We've been doing this show for about five years, and we've seen these ebbs and flows where there's been periods of time where there was a lot of money available, a lot of funding, and then there's periods of time where... The, it's just dried up. I feel like we're in one of those periods right now. Maybe that's a good place to start. Why are we here right now? Is that in my mind or are we really in a dry place right now as far as funding goes? Oh, it's definitely a dry place. Liquidity is, is extremely tight everywhere in the industry right now. And there's actually a lot of reasons for it. It's not just investor capital, but when you have a deeper understanding of sort of the train of events that lead up to being able to present somebody with uh, an opportunity to invest, you realize that some of the dysfunctional problems in our industry really affect it. For example, we all know the difference between accrual accounting and cash accounting. So on an accrual basis, we have a lot of sales out there and it looks great, but maybe our collections aren't quite as strong in our cash flows. So there becomes a disconnect between what you report as your sales and get everybody's enthusiasm up and actually your liquidity needs. So it's pretty hard to send out a great glowing quarterly report that you're looking great, but you're calling the same people for capital. And making sure that you have a fundamental understanding of your collections, your ARs, is critical to being able to effectively raise capital. It's not an obvious point, but it's actually a critical point. And that was less of an issue several years ago. Also, there was, as I like to say, a less than perfect understanding of what this industry is and how companies can grow and how they should perform. And there was a sense that you can get your 10x in 20 minutes because this thing is going to go to the moon. And a lot of money was lost and not just uninformed money. Institutions that are in the market now, these larger private equity companies, they're now having asset sales from their failed companies that they put millions into that you scratch your head as a purchaser of what they're selling. You're like, why the hell would they have ever invested in that when I can't get them to open my data room? And the shift in psychology has been enormous. And all these factors together make raising capital now a very nuanced, very high-skilled 
thing to do. It's not like it was in the past where everybody wanted exposure. Yeah, it's it, there's a really good point. So I think your explanation of how things were in the past it makes it easier for people that are failing right now or not having the success that they've saw, saw other companies had. And the, like you said, people won't even go into your data room right now. And they were the same investors in failed companies. I think that's maybe leads us right to strategies. Like the strategies of the past are not effective today. So what kind of changes should companies be making or what kind of approaches should companies be making so that they're more successful in raising capital? I think you need to be very real about your expectations and what you're selling the marketplace. This is a time where you can't expect people to buy something that even smells unrealistic. Nobody wants to see a hockey stick anymore. They do want to see responsible, symmetrical growth backed up by real customers or however you generate your revenue. If you're not realistic, you're probably not going to get out of the fir off first base. That's on the more structured institutional side. That being said, one of the great words that I've, or expressions I've heard recently is no one's making quote unquote disbursements these days, which is a, a nice way of saying that the large institutions are scared to write checks unless you're one of the riskless top five names in the industry, which there is no riskless top five name, but there's a perception of that. I would say that if you're trying to do something that has a great need for capital and a long runway, you're probably in the wrong business right now. If you have something that requires a few million dollars, maybe less, maybe a little more than that, your best road is the road that we've taken, which is individuals. It is very small institutions, but basically those that just want to get exposure to the space that aren't specialists and building a large and diverse cap table. That's easy for me to say, but it is a very complex toolbox of skills that one has to bring to the table to be successful in our space now for the aforementioned problems structurally we have in the industry. So what we do here is we do our own subscription agreements after they're structured by our attorneys. We get them out, we do the docu-signs, we make our own decks, we pitch it. I'm able to speak fluently about our financials. As CEO, while I'm not the cannabis partner, my partner Carter Latimer is, I have to know every bolt and every weld of this ship, and I have to present it properly. And I have to do it in a very balanced way. And maybe my experience in life, those city miles maybe have some benefit to me because I, I do understand what people don't want to hear as much as what they do want to hear. And yeah. That harder approach means that you're basically sourcing individuals, sourcing people, working your tail off, dealing with the inevitable pushbacks, rejections, delays, and all the rest, and defining a much bigger part of your job, having your hat and hand on bended knee, as opposed to making big, interesting policy decisions with your company. That's where we are now. Yeah. Two things that really jumped out at me, and just what you said, what the first one is the obvious one, but some people feel like they need to just overwhelm and awe the, the person looking at their deck with some crazy numbers. And that's the wrong thing to do. And I th I'm glad you pointed that out. But the other thing that I think is really interesting that, that, you, that you talked about is your cap table and how I think a lot of people are misguided when they start the raising capital process in that they want to find that one partner and then just be done with it. And on paper, that sounds great. But not only is it 
unlikely, but it, there are many disadvantages to that situation. Maybe you can just touch on a few. Well, on paper, it sounds terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a hard enough time making sure the majority of the people that I report to are comfortable. Imagine if you have a jury of one and they disagree. Yeah, I do think having a, a large cap table has the challenges I mentioned earlier, which is building it. <laughs> but once you have that, if you can have the majority of your investors with smaller percentages that trust you, that, and if your trust is worthy, but if, if they trust you and they're passive, it does mean you could run the company as you see fit. If you have two or three big hitters on that cap table, not if, but when you stub your toe, and you will stub your toe. Every quarter or two, something stupid happens beyond your control. You're not going to have a lot of trouble managing it if you have control of your cap table. So the trade that we made is for control. It's not just because it was the only way to go in this market, which made that trade obvious as opposed to more less of a choice, more of a, it was a compelling thing situation. But we feel that there's nobody that's going to call a special meeting and tell us that we have to start selling widgets and not cannabis. That's not coming our way. And that's a very big advantage to not having the one big funder, which is fraught with risk, in my view. Having multiple people on your cap table is, I think people are afraid of because they realize it's going to involve a lot of work. But I don't think they appreciate it doesn't really matter. Once you get into the fundraising, well, give an idea how much of your time is spent fundraising. About 50% more than I want. <laughs> <laughs> so how much is spent on fundraising? A lot. There are points in time where we look at our liquidity over the next, let's say, 30 days, and we do this as a routine. We're always looking at our liquidity on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you can see an air pocket coming. And then suddenly you have to say, okay, we're going to be X amount of dollars short. How are we going to fill this? And sometimes you can think about short-term debt, which is a big problem in our industry and something you need to avoid. And then you say, okay, I have to go to my cap table or find some new friends and I have to either build on the previous round or open up a new round and get something done in a hurry. I've only got three and a half weeks. I've got payrolls coming and I've got orders that I have to, and I have to buy inputs for production and all the rest of the stuff. And that process goes from, oh, I'm flush now, I don't have to think about it, to all I'm doing for the next two weeks is not sleeping and working towards this. And then the stress of it, I think, is more, actually more insidious because as they say in these processes, sometimes the best call is no call. So someone said they're going to get back to you on Wednesday and it's Wednesday morning. Do I call? Do I not call? So you're stressing even though you're not physically working. It's, it's a very hard job to do. It's a specialized job and it requires a lot of poise. So I can go on and on about how difficult the process is. It's not a matter of time in terms of what am I doing every second of the day. It's a matter of how much concentration am I putting to it, how much stress am I committing to it. And you have an the advantage that you have a strong partner who can run the company while your mind is someplace else. Yeah. And that's and, and so many CEOs don't have that the advantage. And so their business sometimes takes a hit during this period of time. Um, there's one, one last thing that I felt was really interesting when we spoke last time, and I think it's a great advice, that, and that is 
you talk about keeping it really at the razor's edge. Like, like even if there is opportunity to get, to have extra, like you sometimes feel you're, at least this is what you told me, and maybe you can expand on this, is there are advantages to having it kind of tight and not being overly flush with investment capital. Well, the first thing you need to do is to be able to explain to your shareholders why you've diluted them. And if, you've, if you're not paying out distributions and you've diluted them an extra 6% and you're sitting with a million two in cash, not deployed, you're setting yourself up for a very difficult conversation. And if you can run it as tight as possible without large cash reserves, you don't have pressures to do things with your capital that aren't productive, and you also protect the dilution component, which is as much financial as it is political. So there's a lot of reasons to stay tight. The other is that, quite frankly, the inherent discipline of being able to tell your production team, hey, I don't have the money, I can't do it. I mean, it just it sounds like a cop-out, but it's the truth because, believe me, the wish list of things will never stop because these people are amazing professionals. They know what they need. And it's always, if I had this, I could really do that. And we're not at the point where we should be doing that. But if I have tons of money in the bank, uh, which... Believe me, it's a problem I wouldn't you know, run away from. But if I had a choice, I think I'd rather be tighter or at least keep that amount of money secret. <laughs> yeah, just don't tell them you have it. Exactly right. Exactly. Well, Paul, this has been really helpful, and I appreciate you taking the time to do a second interview with us to share these thoughts. And I'm sure our listeners will find everything that we talked about really helpful. And I'll have all of Paul's information and Paper Plane's information in the show notes. So if you're an investor or you want to circle back with Paul and talk some more about some opportunities with his company or if maybe another business person that wants to talk to him about some opportunities that you have, I'm sure Paul or somebody from his team would be happy to talk to him. Paul, we're going to keep doing this. I, I, I feel like there's lots of other topics that we can take a deeper dive on, which would be fun to do, and I'm sure everybody would enjoy doing that. So if you're up for it, definitely have you back. And thanks again for doing this one. Dan, it's always a privilege to be on your show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.